Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Last week we looked at this passage and considered Christ's teaching on marriage. Well, this week we continue in this passage considering the broader teaching of Christ here concerning divorce. And I know this is not a topic that we like to talk about, and I know that it can be a sensitive one for many in the church. So I pray that you will hear the words of Christ in our text and not be discouraged and cast down, but instead encouraged and edified. So give your attention now to the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 3. The Pharisees, came un, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife and the twain, shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us ask his blessing upon it. O Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this word which Thou hast given us. Even though this word may be a tough one, a difficult passage for us, Lord, we are thankful that Thou hast preserved it and given it to us for our edification, for our encouragement, for our instruction. O oh Lord, let us receive this word with gladness and with joy so that it may instruct us in the ways that we should walk, that we may not fall into the pit of our culture, but that we would stay in that narrow path, the path which leads to righteousness. O oh Lord, we ask, Thy blessing would be upon the preaching of this word. Let it go forth and never return void. O Lord, open our hearts and our minds. Open our ears. Give us a ready and open ear to hear what Thou hast prepared for us this day. Lord, speak through Thy servant as he relies upon Thee. 
O Lord, feed us this day with thy word and let us cherish it, treasure it in our hearts, treasure it above all else. So bless our worship, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. The latest statistics show that between 40 and 50% of marriages in the United States end in divorce. And that number ought to sicken us. And that number is just for first-time marriages. If you look at second marriages, the, num- uh, the number is even higher with 60 to 65% ending in divorce. What do these numbers tell us? They tell us that the culture that we live in has an incredibly low view of marriage and is comfortable with having many marriages end in divorce. But before we begin to think that this is only a problem out there in the land of the heathen, The most recent statistics show that around 33% of evangelical Protestant marriages end in divorce. And unfortunately, evangelical Protestants make up the religious group with the highest divorce rates out of all religions. Friends, this ought to shame us. This means that the church at large for generations has failed to properly teach and instruct believers in what the Scripture says concerning marriage and divorce. In 1969, then-Governor Ronald Reagan signed into law a bill in California which permitted no-fault divorce meaning that when someone filed for divorce, they were no longer required to explain to the court the fault of the offending party in order to receive a divorce. And following the example of California, every state in the union began to sign into law their own bills permitting no-fault divorce. Since then, the divorce rate has nearly doubled. But why is no-fault divorce so wrong? Why should we not be able to end a marriage if it's not working out the way that we had hoped? Well, because the Word of God is clear on this issue. We confess in chapter 4 of our confession of faith that nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient for dissolving the bond of marriage. And so we'll take up this theme of divorce this afternoon and we will do so by considering three heads. First, Divorce for adultery. Next, divorce for abandonment. And then finally, we'll consider remarriage after divorce. 
So first, let us consider divorce for adultery. The Bible nowhere supports the idea of no-fault divorce. But instead, Christ is very clear about when a divorce is lawful. In fact, the very question that the Pharisees asked Christ in order to trap Him was dealing with this matter. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They asked this because it was their practice to misuse the provision given in Deuteronomy, which was intended to protect women from this very thing. They, they would misuse this provision as a means to divorce for any cause. And so the trap was laid that if Christ said no, then He would be accused of going against the writings of Moses. But if He said yes, then they would charge Him with being a false prophet and going against the design of the Lord for marriage. But Christ did not fall into the trap. He instead pointed them to the original design for marriage that we looked at last week. And we get the first glimpse of His answer on divorce in verse 6. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Jehovah intended marriage to be a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman in an indissoluble union. Lorraine Bettner writes, his reply makes it clear that marriage was intended to be not merely a social contract of temporary convenience, nor a union that might be dissolved at will, but a permanent union continuing as long as both parties live. Christ is saying that to attempt to tear apart the marriage union is to attempt to tear apart one's own flesh. Because the two have become one flesh. He is tearing Himself in half something which even nature itself testifies against. But divorce was permitted. Not because God designed it to be so, but because of the hardness of man's hearts. Christ says, Moses, because the hardness of your hearts suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Divorce is not something which God designed from the beginning, but it's something which came about due to the sinfulness of man. And so Christ gives the first ground for a biblical divorce, adultery. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, 
except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Adultery which leads to a divorce dissolves the marriage union between the husband and the wife. Adultery is an act which by its very nature is so heinous, so abnormal and extreme, so contrary to the basic concept of marriage as originally instituted, that the innocent husband or wife is no longer under the obligation of the guilty party. It's a violation of marital sanctity. When the adulterer unites himself with a harlot, he has violated the one flesh principle and has instead become one flesh with the whore. In fact, this is what's described as taking place in the whoredoms of Israel in Jeremiah 3.8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. So while Malachi 2.16 is true, that God hates divorce. It's not the divorce itself that God hates, thus making the act in and of itself sinful. But instead, it is the sin that leads to the divorce that God hates. I know that there are some within Christianity who would say that divorce is never permitted and it's always a sin but they're going against the Word of God and they're imposing laws that are stricter than the Lord does. It's a wicked thing to say that someone who has been violated in this way, who has had the marriage bed defiled, who has been betrayed by their own flesh, is then obligated to stay with their adulterous spouse. The covenant has been broken and the one flesh has been torn apart by the wicked act of adultery. But that does not mean that adultery necessitates divorce. I've sat in the counseling room with a couple who had experienced infidelity and there was a true brokenness over the sin and a sincere desire to see the marriage work. Was there grounds for divorce? Absolutely. Did that mean that they had to go out and file for a divorce? Absolutely not. Friends, there is no sin so great that the Holy Spirit working within the hearts of two believers cannot overcome. And it's important to note that the word Christ uses here is not the word that's commonly used for adultery, but it's the more general term fornication, meaning any sexual, any type of sexual immorality. 
And so that would include marital rape and sexual molestation and homosexuality and all other types of sexual sins. But I must warn you not to fall into the pattern of the Pharisees by seeking to make this mean whatever you want it to mean in order to justify an unlawful divorce. A man who is ensnared by the sin of pornography does not give his wife grounds for divorce. A woman who goes out to dinner with a man other than her husband does not give him grounds for divorce. It's a sad state when Christians try to make everything fit into a just cause for divorce instead of seeking to work through whatever is happening and pursuing reconciliation for the sake of Christ. I don't know every person here's story. And so there may be someone here who has either gotten a divorce for the cause of adultery or has misused this cause as a justification for an unlawful divorce. And I want you to hear me carefully. Hear me carefully when I say that there is love and forgiveness and comfort to be found in Christ Jesus. Friends, you ought not to be known as a people who shames those who have experienced this, but instead you ought to be known as a people who loves those who have gone through this tearing apart of the one flesh. And so that is the only exception that Christ gives here in His answer to the Pharisees concerning divorce. But that's not the only exception that is given in Scripture. We see that the Apostle Paul speaks to the matter of divorce from a different angle in 1 Corinthians 7.15 where we see divorce for abandonment. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God hath called us to peace. Here in this passage, he's specifically speaking of an unbelieving spouse leaving a believing spouse after their conversion. And this is something that happens even to this day. I know of people who have gone through this exact situation where they become a Christian and their spouse doesn't and the unbelieving spouse feels as though they can no longer stay in the relationship, and so they leave. In this case, a divorce is lawful because the spouse has decided to nullify the marriage covenant by forsaking their own flesh and thus tearing apart that which was one back into that which is two. But this is in the case of an unbeliever leaving a believer. Christians are never permitted to abandon their spouse 
because they're not believers. That goes against everything Paul says in this passage. Look at verses 12 to 14. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she is pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the believing wife is sanctified by the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. There is a sense in which staying with the unbelieving spouse sanctifies them. Not that it makes them into a Christian by proxy, but that your own spiritual life will have an impact upon them. And so Paul says that you are to stay with your unbelieving spouse, trusting that the Lord will use you as an instrument for the gospel in their lives. But this is still speaking of a believer and an unbeliever in their marriage. What of two believers? Well, there is no instance in which a believer is to abandon his wife. This is a wicked thing to do. Believers are called to do whatever it takes to make a marriage work because it is a covenant that is made and is to be an indissoluble union as Jehovah intended. But unfortunately, there are those who willfully abandon the marriage bed, whether it be through physical desertion uh, of leaving the spouse or, or it be through committing crimes which lead to the spouse being incarcerated and thus abandoning the other. An argument here is made that abuse would fall into this category. And most certainly, physical abuse would fall into the category of committing a crime which causes the abandonment of a spouse through incarceration. However, once again, I must warn you not to be as the Pharisees seeking out ways in which to stretch the meaning of a word to encompass basically everything. I've heard people try to use the abandonment clause as a reason to divorce their spouse trying to claim mental abuse or emotional abuse. And friends, don't hear me say that those things do not happen and that they're not sins which must be dealt with. But that is not what is meant by abandonment. Yes, the church ought to love and care for and minister to and shepherd those who are going through mental and emotional abuse, but to counsel them towards divorce is an ungodly thing. I've even heard some people try to make basically anything they don't like about their spouse out to be some sort of abuse. 
This is essentially the boy who cried wolf. It makes it more difficult to be able to readily see true abuse when it happens. Excuse me. It makes it uh, more difficult to see true abuse when it happens because of all of these false uh, accusations of abuse that are occurring. Bettner argues that Paul says that each party is to do everything reasonably possible to avoid separation. Or if separation already has already taken place, then each party is to do everything reasonably possible to reestablish the home. This is what is required in the marriage between two believers. That you're to do everything reasonably possible. And I want you to take note of what our confession says about what constitutes abandonment in the grounds for divorce. It's said to be such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate. So first of all, it is willful. That means that a man who has gone off to war is not abandoning his wife while he is away for a year fighting. That's not a willful desertion but one which is necessitated by his duty to his country. It's also desertion which cannot be remedied by the church or civil magistrate. Friends, there's a duty in the church to do whatever you can to assist in reconciling marriages in these cases. The members of the congregation ought to be doing what they can to lend a helping hand to see the spouse who is left return in repentance and seek reconciliation in the marriage. The elders of the church have a duty to seek out that person and to convince them from the Word of God of their duties towards their spouse and to seek restoration of the relationship. The church must be involved in this. You don't just get to decide that you've done everything you can to convince your spouse to come back and so they've abandoned you and, and now you've been given the grounds for divorce. No, the decision must come with the guidance and the wisdom of the church after every attempt has been made. And then it also mentions the civil magistrate. This would be in the instance that someone just walks away and there's no hint of where they've gone. The magistrate is to get involved to assist in finding a spouse and bringing them back home. And just to give a personal story on this, my great uncle did this very thing. He just walked away from his family and he disappeared with no one knowing where he was or why he left. 
The magistrate had to get involved because it was essentially a missing persons case. And eventually he was found to have uh, gone out west and after several years living out there, he eventually passed away. But notice in all instances dealing with abandonment, every effort must be made in restoring the marriage, both within the church and within the civil magistrate. Every effort must be made in restoring the marriage and reconciling both persons. And only then, after all other avenues have been shown to be a dead end, then may the innocent party get the divorce. The biblical foundation for a lawful divorce is firmly established in Scripture with only two recognized grounds, adultery and abandonment. These grounds are clearly stated, leaving no room for alternative justifications. However, the Scripture's teachings on divorce are not isolated. They, they also impose restrictions upon remarriage. And that adds another layer of complexity to this sensitive issue. When addressing remarriage after divorce, and, and particularly uh, in cases of adultery, Christ asserts, and I say unto you, whoever shall put away his wife except to be for fornication and shall marry another committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. So if a man divorces his wife due to her infidelity and then remarries, he is not condemned for committing adultery. This exception acknowledges that the marriage bond has been dissolved through the grievous act of adultery, thus freeing the innocent party to enter into a new marital union as though their former spouse has passed away. David Dixon affirms this, stating, marriage is loosed by adultery and the innocent party is free for he makes an exception of fornication as a cause making the party injured to be free to put away the adulteress. The emphasis lies in the freedom that is granted to the innocent party, allowing them to move forward without the burden of guilt or prohibition from remarriage. And so it is necessary to distinguish between the innocent and the guilty parties in the divorce. The innocent party, the one who suffered the betrayal of adultery, is granted the freedom to remarry without consequence. However, the guilty party, as emphasized by Christ, is not given that same liberty. Christ says that whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. To marry the offending party is to commit adultery yourself. For they are not free as the innocent party is. 
And then the only other instance in which remarriage is permitted is when there is a true case of abandonment. And only if the one who abandons is an unbeliever or through his own actions has proven himself to be an unbeliever. If a Christian divorces his believing wife for any reason other than fornication, then he is to remain unmarried and to seek the restoration of that marriage. I know this sounds crazy to our modern ears. This series is called Countercultural Christianity after all. And this is countercultural, even within the church. But just because two people are divorced does not mean that they have the right according to the Word of God to get remarried. This is the plain teaching of 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. Let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But if the abandonment happens by an unbeliever, then it is a biblical divorce and the believer is free to remarry. 1 Corinthians 7.15 But if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. He or she is not under bondage. They are no longer bound to the unbelieving spouse who has deserted them. This is the same language as them being free as we saw earlier. And so friends, Scripture is clear concerning the act of divorce. It is a terrible thing and the sinfulness of man has given cause for the need of divorcement to take place. But I must emphasize to you once again, there is freedom and love and forgiveness and comfort to be found in Christ. Yes, divorce for an unbiblical cause is sin, but it is not the unpardonable sin. If you've gone through an unlawful divorce, do not feel crushed by this teaching, but instead run to Christ and find forgiveness there. Let His mercy remove that sin washing you whiter than snow. And church... Do not shame those who have gone through divorce. Because they've already gone through enough hurt on their own. They don't need you piling any more on top of them. And my charge to you this day, brothers and sisters, is to seek to uphold the marriage covenant in the way that Jehovah intended as an indissoluble union for all the days of your lives. Do not be as the culture anticipating divorce, getting prenuptial agreements prior to marriage, but instead rely upon Christ to work in and through your marriage to cause it to be strengthened and to reflect that greater marriage.
which is between him and his bride. Let us pray. O Lord, we do mourn over the fact that divorce even exists. That the sinfulness of man's heart has warranted divorce to uh, be a thing. Oh Lord, let it never be so among us. Let us keep our marriages pure, free from the stain and the betrayal of adultery. Let us cling to our spouses so as to never abandon them. O Lord, protect us and preserve us from any cause for a divorce. Let us look to that marriage between Christ and His bride who though He has just cause for divorcing us, due to our unfaithfulness for Him. Yet He does not put us away. And let us seek to imitate that, showing patience and forbearance and love for all the days of our lives. Seeking to have our marriages reflect that greater one. O Lord, let us stand as a testimony against the culture. A culture who believes that marriages and divorcements are just uh, part of your everyday life. A culture which thinks if you aren't happy with your wife or your husband, you just get a divorce and find a new one as though it were a trial run. Oh Lord, let us stand contrary to the culture around us and let us stand upon Thy Word. Oh Lord, we are thankful for this Word which Thou hast given us. And we pray that it would be a comfort and an encouragement to all those who hear. We ask that Thou wouldst bless the remainder of our worship this day. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.